your Bibles. Go ahead and take your Bible in your hands. I love God's Word. I love God's Word. I've said this before. One of the great privileges of my life has been to communicate God's Word and to tell people about Jesus and to point them to His Word. And if you've been with us for several weeks, um, you know that uh, you know that we have we have been really talking about God's Word and about getting into God's Word. And so, if you have that Bible with you, whatever format it might be, go ahead and open it to Matthew chapter four, the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, the first of the four Gospels, Matthew chapter 4. I've been encouraging some of you to read through Matthew, and so you may have read this within just the last couple of weeks, but we're going to look at a portion of it again today. May the Lord bless His Word to us this day. So Matthew chapter 4, actually I want to refer back to the, briefly at the very end of chapter 3, because it's at the end of Matthew chapter 3 that Jesus is baptized in water. It's in the Jordan River, and the man who baptized him is a man by the name of John. His, we refer to him as John the Baptist. His middle name was not the last name Baptist, but that's just what we refer to him as. He was a man who would baptize people who were repenting and coming back to God, uh, repenting in their hearts. And, and, and so it's a little bit quizzical here because you think, well, Jesus was God. He, he's the second person of the Trinity. He, he was sinless. He was spotless. Why did he have to? He didn't have to be baptized, but in obedience to his Father and in submission to his Father, and I believe also as an example to us, Jesus allowed himself to be baptized in water. By the way, I'm just going to add this. In just a few weeks, in November, we're going to have a water baptism service right here. We don't have to go to the Jordan River. It's going to happen right here at AFA. And there are a number of you who have not yet been baptized in water, but you've professed faith in Jesus Christ. We want to give you that opportunity. And so we'll tell you more about that. But Jesus did it at, at the end of chapter 3. It's a wonderful, wonderful story. You can read it later. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, it reads this way. It says, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. So Jesus, he's just been, been obedient to be baptized. He comes up out of the water, and shortly thereafter, the Spirit of God speaks to him, the third person of the Trinity, speaks to him, leads him into, into the, the, the desert to be tempted by the devil. Now, you can read the entire account later. It's also recorded, by the way, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. But it was in this very desolate place. It calls it here a desert. Other translations, it may say a wilderness. But it was in that desolate place on three different occasions and in specific ways that Satan tempted Jesus. Let me say that again. Satan tempted Jesus. Now, I don't know if you're like me. I have read this many times. It's, again, there's, it's mentioned two times in the Gospels. We can become very familiar with this, but think about that. This man was not just tempted. He was tempted by Satan. Jesus was tempted by Satan. Now, let me just say a couple things about temptation. Temptation is not sin. Temptation is you're tempted to sin, you're tempted to surrender, you're tempted to give in to something, and that's going to come the, all of our lives. 
Sinning is when we give in to that temptation. Jesus, we know, never did sin, but he was tempted. In fact, the Bible says Jesus was tempted in every way, and yet he never gave in to it. And here on this occasion, in the fourth chapter of Matthew, it records how Jesus was tempted three times. But think of this, he was tempted by Satan himself. That must have been horrible. I've been tempted, you've been tempted. We're going to be tempted until about five seconds before we're dead. We're going to experience temptation, but Jesus was tempted in every way, and he was tempted by Satan himself. In fact, I believe he was tempted a number of times throughout his life by Satan himself. How horrible that must have been. How horrible it must have been to be face to face with Satan and being tempted by him. Don't, in your familiarity with this, don't overlook the severity of it. But with each of those three temptations, it says here that Jesus responded in much the same way. He used different words, but he responded in much the same way because each time the Bible tells us Jesus quoted Scripture. The first time was from Deuteronomy chapter 8. The second time he was tempted, he responded from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And the third time that he was tempted, Jesus replied from Exodus chapter 20. He quoted these Scriptures he didn't <clears throat> say, Satan, just a moment here, let me pull out, and he reached in, he pulled out a, a pocket scroll, and he opened it up to Deuteronomy and then to Exodus. He had memorized these things so that when he was tempted, his immediate response was to give the enemy the word of God. Jesus did not, you, you can read again the entire account later in Matthew 4 or Luke 4, but you will not find Jesus debating Satan. You will not find him arguing with Satan. He didn't reason with Satan. Jesus never made a deal with the devil. Never. Not on this occasion, not ever. But Jesus repeatedly used the power and the authority of God's word to refute the, eyes, the lies of the enemy. He used the truth of God's word. That's a very important word this morning. He used the truth of God's word that he had memorized. He used the truth of God's word almost as if kind of like a, like a, like a sword, like a thrusting sword. He used it to beat back the words and the lies and the twisted statements of the enemy of Satan himself. And each time, every time, Jesus prevailed. Read the, the account later. Jesus, the Bible says, then he, at that point, he returned from that time of temptation in the desert. He was there for 40 days. He returned, and then he began his public ministry, and he began to teach people. And, and, and that is recorded, actually, in, in the chapter that follows this. Uh, one of his most significant teachings uh, came in Matthew's chapters 5 through 7. So again, if you've been reading through Matthew, you read 4, you read 3, uh, the account of his baptism, you read 4, his temptation, you read 5, 6, and 7 are what we call the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's a long, if you have a red letter edition of the Bible, it's just pure red, 5, 6, and 7. And you see here Jesus teaching and speaking to, to large groups of people. In that sermon, in that what we call the Sermon on the Mount, 
we see here that Jesus quoted Scripture no less than nine times. I went through and counted. On no less than nine times in that one message, he quoted Scripture. He quoted from God's Word. Again and again, he would connect his words, the the words that were written centuries before, to people's present realities. He knew what they were going through, and he would reach back in time, not to some dusty old book that is archaic, not to something that is antiquated and no longer useful or relevant, but he reached back in his mind to the living Word of God, and he would bring those references forward, and the people, when they heard them, they understood, this is not just from a long time ago, this is for my present reality. To Jesus, those were not old stories. They were not old words, but they were living words, and they were powerful words, and they were timeless words. Jesus understood that there's no expiration date on the Word of God. This morning, my son, my, our youngest son is here, and we, we, uh, we, we, we were getting the communion out of the refrigerator, and I looked up, and on the shelf, there's a there's a, a jug of milk. It, 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 it expired in, in the middle of August. Uh, there's some milk in the refrigerator if you want some. <laughs> a lot of things have an expiration date. A lot of things wear out. Some things were not made to last forever. Some things were meant to be used and then disposed of and discarded. But the Word of God, Jesus knew the Word of God is timeless. And he reached back and he pulled it forward. And the people went, that is powerful and that is profound. For the next three years, in his miracles, in his other teachings, in his conversations, when he was asked questions or when he asked questions of other people, Jesus again and again and again quoted Scripture. Perhaps in your Bible, you'll see it. It'll be, have a different font in it. That means that it was, it was, he was quoting Scripture. You'll see it. It's maybe in, in, it's italicized or it's in, it's in quote marks. And, and that is when Jesus is pulling those references from the past for the present. At the Last Supper, we're going to be remembering that here momentarily, but at the Last Supper on the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus again and again quoted Scripture. And then later on when he was falsely accused and when he was beaten and when he hung on a cross and when he took the sin of every person, Think of this, when he took the sin of every person who had ever lived or ever would live, when he took the sin of every person upon himself and died for those sins, he knew that he was fulfilling Scripture. He knew that he was fulfilling statements that were made, in some cases, centuries before. He knew that he was not only doing God's will, but he was fulfilling what had been foretold about him. So as you read the Gospels, as you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as you read the Gospels, you understand how God's Word was indescribably important to Jesus. Sometimes we overlook that. The the Bible was incredibly important to Jesus. But why? Why? Why was the Bible, why was God's Word 
so important to him? Again, maybe that's not a question that you've ever asked, but why was it so important to him? Why did he commit so much of it to memory? You know, he didn't have to. We don't know a lot of what Jesus was doing growing up. We just have one little glimpse of him at age 12, and we know some of the events, of course, of his birth. But we don't see, we don't have a record. We're not supposed to have the record. Maybe someday when we get to heaven, we'll get the rest of the story. But right now, we know everything we're supposed to know. But this is an assumption. I believe that as a little boy, his mother, his father, other people would teach him, and they would train him, and they would place God's word before him. And he learned these things. He memorized these things. He didn't just have them downloaded because he was the second person of the Trinity. He, he understood God's word because he had read God's word, because he had memorized God's word, because he'd been speaking God's word long before these events that we've just recounted today. He'd committed so much, but why did he commit so much of it to memory? Why did he speak it to, if it was one person in front of him or a handful of people or scores of people or thousands of people? Why did he repeatedly speak God's word to them? The answer is because Jesus knew that God's word had authority. That's a very important word. Jesus knew that God's word had authority, that it was unlike any other word, that it was powerful and that it was effective, that it was eternal truth, not not an ever-changing guise of truth. Jesus knew that they were more than just words, more than just statements in a scroll. Jesus knew. Jesus knew that his words recorded in the Bible would speak truth to any person in any culture of any time throughout history. Jesus, I believe Jesus knew that as he's speaking these things, do you know that Jesus actually never, Jesus, the only thing that, that it's ever recorded that Jesus wrote, that he wrote with his hand, the Bible says that he wrote it in the dirt. And that was quickly blown away or trampled underfoot. But the words that Jesus spoke, the, the things that he said, the, the statements he made, I believe as he was making them, he knew that it would be recorded by gospel writers so that we would study them. He knew that he was speaking the words of God. He knew that they were powerful. He knew that they had the potential to change lives. I believe he was also showing those first believers He was also showing those first believers and believers today an example to follow. I believe that one of the reasons why he, when he was tempted by Satan himself, because he knew that years later, decades later, centuries later, right down to 2019, people would read that and say, if Jesus did that, then maybe I should do that when I am tempted. Jesus knew that he was serving as an example so that when he spoke to one person, who, who was hopeless, and he gave them the word of God, that we too, when we encounter people who are hopeless or hurting or, or, or need a healing, that we too would speak to them the word of God. He, he did so as an example to us. <laughs> and the thing is, we have the record. Those first believers, those first followers of Jesus Christ, the early ones recorded in the Bible, particularly in the book of Acts, 
They followed his example. For example, um, in, 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 uh, in Mark chapter 16, it's the very last chapter of the gospel of Mark, Jesus was about to return to heaven. But before he did so, he, he told his disciples, he said this, in my name you will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. It's just one of the things that Jesus told them as final instructions. He said, he specified, he said, in my name, you will lay hand on the sick and they will recover. Perhaps you're new here this morning and you wonder why, why is it that, that we have people up here praying for people and we lay hands on them or we lay hands on their shoulders, we anoint them with oil. We do so because, because of what Jesus said here in Mark chapter 16, also because of what James says that we're to anoint them with oil. We're obedient to God's word. Jesus said, if someone is sick, then in my name pray for them and lay hands on them and the sick will get better. <laughs> he promised that. And that's what he said just before he went into heaven, shortly after that. Maybe as, 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 as little as a few weeks or maybe a few months at the most. But shortly after that, two of his disciples met a man who could not walk, who was begging near the temple in Jerusalem. Remembering what Jesus said, remembering his words, Peter said to the man, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ. Hear what he says? He said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And then it says, taking him by the right hand, he helped him up and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. That disciple, that disciple followed Jesus' words. He remembered Jesus' words he remembered his instruction, and in Jesus' name, he reached down with his right hand, reached, grabbed the man's right hand, and he pulled him up. And here's what I think happened. I believe that he knew there was something powerful in the name of Jesus. And when he said, in the name of Jesus, something happened when his hand touched that man's body, when he literally laid hands on him, I believe that in that moment, the healing came. Suddenly the man did what he had not been able to do. His legs were so strong he was able to get up and start walking. Glory to God. Why? Because somebody remembered what Jesus said and somebody put it to work. We say that again. Somebody remembered what Jesus said, but they knew that it was more than just words on a page, dusty words on a page, that it was powerful truth for people's present realities. They connected. These early believers connected Jesus' words spoken weeks or months earlier to people's present realities. And like Jesus, they learned God's word. Like Jesus, they used God's word. Like Jesus, they prayed God's word. And like Jesus, they spoke God's word. You can read through the book of Acts. You can read through the epistles. You can read through the rest of the New Testament. And again and again and again, you will see people quoting from God's word. Now, let me just give you a little bit of historical perspective for a moment. Some of you, this is going to be really interesting. And some of you, you're just going to go ho-hum, whatever. Listen to this. During this same time, during this same time, in the early decades of the first century, during this same time, the great cultural influence 
was the Greek culture. Alexander the Great had conquered much of the then known world a couple of hundred years before, and, and Greek culture permeated that area. Rome, with its military might, ruled the world, but it was Greek culture that really kind of ruled society. The people and many of those parts of the Roman Empire were enamored by Greek culture. We still see it in, in, in architecture then and now. You see it in literature then and now, and, and they were enamored by Greek culture. Greek teachers and philosophers like Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and Pythagoras, they, they, were, they were studied and they were scrutinized. Their words and, and their teachings were discussed and, and, and debated. And the Greeks, this is what's important, the Greeks believed that truth was to be found in the accumulation of information and the discussion of great ideas. Again, the Greeks believed that truth could be derived from the accumulation. If you get enough information, if you gather enough information from the world around you, and if you, if you put it all together and then you discuss these great ideas, then you will arrive at truth. That's a bit of a simplification, but that, that pretty much captures it. Kind of sounds like today, doesn't it? If we have enough information, if we have enough knowledge, then that will give us the answers for our world today. <laughs> that was a long time ago, but that kind of culture still permeates, or that kind of thinking permeates our culture today. But here's the thing. So you've got this, a bit of a, a conflict between cultures here. You have this... <clears throat> You have this Greek influence upon society that said, it, it's, if you get enough knowledge and information, you will arrive at truth. But Christians came into conflict with what believers believed <clears throat> because the Christians had come to understand that reading and studying God's word, that reading and studying the word of God was far more than an academic exercise. It was far more than simply gathering information from these pages, gathering information from God's Word, that it was in fact powerful to change lives. There was something inherently powerful about the Word of God. It wasn't just a good idea, it was powerful change. That what they read and believed in God's Word made a difference in how people lived. It didn't just give you a good idea, it gave you a different life. It changed how you lived. It wasn't something that was just in the head, but it was also in the heart and eventually in the hands. Let me say that again. It wasn't something that was just in the head. It wasn't just an academic exercise, but it was also something that changed the very deepest part of a person, and then eventually it went out into how people lived and what they did and, 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 and how, they, how they treated people. The Word of God, people understood, was more than just a good idea, but it changed people. They knew from experience, 
that if someone was in Christ, God's word did more than inform them, it transformed them. God's word did more than inform them, it transformed them. <coughs> Mark chapter 1. Verse 27 summed it up when it says this. The people were also amazed at Jesus' words that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. You see, the people of that time and that culture, they were very accustomed to new ideas. They were very accustomed to ideas that would come and they would throw it around and they would pass it back and forth and they would tweak it a little bit. They were very accustomed to that, but this was different. This was a new idea, but this had, again, that word, authority. It was powerful. It was powerful. It was powerful. Do you understand that God's word is powerful to change lives. I know it because I read it here, but I also know it because I know many of your stories. And I have seen how God's word has, because you have first given your life to Christ, you know you can read this through a hundred times, and if you've never surrendered your, your life to Christ, it won't make a whole lot of difference. It'll give you some knowledge, and it'll give you some wisdom, but it'll never change a heart. Now, I'm not putting down reading God's word. I'm simply saying that it only works if you first come to the Lord Jesus Christ. But for a person who comes to Christ and then spends time in this word, it changes how they think and how they act and how they respond. If you were here last week, I shared a couple of times just from my own life how God's word made such a difference, not just in my thinking, but in my behavior. This is what it's supposed to do. It has authority. God's word has authority. I mentioned a few weeks ago, and I briefly men mentioned it a little few minutes ago, but a few weeks ago I mentioned how in Ephesians chapter 6 it tells us that we are to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. I don't have a sword. I don't own a sword. I actually used to own a sword um, uh, and I loaned it to uh, a young man who we were having a dramatic presentation up here, and, and he sliced his leg and got 16 stitches. And so I got rid of the sword. I don't have a sword here with me this morning, but I, I should have a sword. But I, a sword's a powerful thing. A sword can do damage, right? A sword is a fearsome-looking thing. A sword is something that <clears throat> is not just defensive, it's offensive. And here in Ephesians chapter 6, <coughs> along with the defensive protection that God gives us, the defensive things, the armor of God, we must also take up this weapon, the Word of God, which is offensive in nature. It doesn't just protect us from the enemy, it fights back against the enemy. And this is why when Jesus was tempted... Do you know, it was on the last temptation, that third temptation, when Jesus said, Be gone, Satan, for it is written. Do you know Jesus could have said the first time, all he had to say is, Be gone, Satan, and Satan would have had to leave. Why? Because Jesus is God. But he didn't do that. 
Instead, he quoted Scripture, not once, not twice, three times he quoted Scripture. Why? Because I believe he wanted to show us that this Word, God's Word, is powerful, and it pushes back when the enemy comes our way. That it's powerful. It's not just defensive, it's offensive. I wonder how many times do people give in to things because they fail to understand the power of God's Word. There have been times where I have quoted Scripture. In fact, there have been times where I've quoted the same Scripture, the same reference like 30 times in a row while the temptation is coming, while I'm walking away. I've been quoting that. I'll give you more examples, but I did that last week where I kept quoting it. There have been times when I have been almost overwhelmed with discouragement and I had to quote Scripture. There have been times when I almost gave up, but I kept quoting Scripture because I find power in the Word of God. And before you know it, the enemy runs because of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. God's Word is a weapon that does damage to the kingdom of darkness. God's word is a weapon that does damage to the kingdom of darkness. Let me say it again. God's word is a weapon that does damage to the kingdom of darkness. And some of you are being pushed around, and some of you are being poked by the enemy, and some of you are being destroyed by the enemy. And I tell you, if you have Jesus in your heart and the power of God's word in your heart and in your mind and in your voice and in your hands, I'll tell you what, you're going to push back against the enemy. But only if we know it, only if we read it and study it and speak it. It does no good if it's on the shelf and we don't go there. What good, is a, what good is a sword that we keep? What good is any kind of weapon? What, what good is it if it's locked away and never referred to and we, do, we can't get to it quickly? It's just a collectible then. It's just an ornament then. It's a museum piece. It's something that we have and we pull out occasionally and look at it and say, oh, I'm so glad I have it. That's fine if it's, a, if it's a sword or a gun or if it's some kind of weapon. But if it's truly a weapon, it's something that is used to push back when the enemy comes our way. It only works. It only works if we know it, if we read it, if we study it, and if we speak it. Yesterday, a bunch of kids, right? You saw the picture up there earlier. Yesterday, a bunch of kids, a lot of adults, took part in that junior Bible quiz meet. We won't pull the picture up again, but you remember seeing it. When I first saw it, Pastor Ryan, our kids' pastor, put it together last night and sent it to me. When I first looked at the picture, no kidding, no, I didn't imagine this, I didn't see things, but... Here's in, in my heart, here's, here's what I, I saw these little kids holding this little, you know, oh, we got number one. <laughs> Some of them were holding their little books that they study, the, the guides. You know what I really saw? I saw kids with swords. 
and swords that are going to get bigger and swords that they're going to have the rest of their lives. But you know what? When I see somebody with the word of God in their hearts, you know, I, I, I see people with swords. When I hear of people saying, oh, man, this is hard, uh, but I'm going to get up earlier, I'm going to stay up later, or I'm going to carve some out in the middle of the day, and they get alone with God and they pull out the Bible. You know what I see? I see people with swords pushing back against the darkness. I see people who are changing lives, not only theirs, but the people around them, because the Word is powerful. If you've been here for these recent weeks, um, you've seen this, and it may, it may, uh, this is now the third time I've done it, and it may annoy you. And you know what? Quite frankly, I don't care. Because if, if, if it annoys some, but someone else is, is, is moved to, to begin engaging in God's word, and it makes a difference in their life, then it's worth it. So I have five directives for you. You've seen this before. You need to get a Bible. Get a Bible. Just get a Bible. I think we gave out seven of them last week. But you, you probably, you, you, you may very well have one. You may very well have one in, in your home. Pull it out. Get a Bible. There are many good translations in, in your language. Um, get one that's, that's very readable. There are good ones. If you have any questions, just I'll tell you what's good or what's, stay away. But there, there are many good ones. Get a Bible. Get a Bible that's your own. Something you can carry around with you. Something you can put in a special place. Not lock it away, but get a Bible. Secondly, get alone with the Bible. Turn off the, the noise. Turn it off. Close the computer. They have this thing on cell phones that's it's a power button. I know some people have it. You can actually turn. Did you know you can turn those things off? Did you know that? Yeah, you can do that. I, yeah, you can turn them off. You can silence them. You can ignore it. You can get alone with the Bible. You can turn off that media. You can turn off that music. You can close that door. You can get alone with God's Word. Get alone with the Bible. Begin in Matthew. Don't. I love Genesis. We're, we're gonna, but don't, don't start in Genesis because you're going to hit Leviticus. I got nothing against Leviticus. Leviticus is good. But if you've never read the Bible before, it's going to be really hard plowing once you get to, and some of you know what I'm talking about. But you start with Matthew. Why Matthew? Because it's a story of Jesus. And then you get done with Matthew and you get to Mark and that's the story of Jesus. And then you get done with Mark and, and, then, and then you start Luke and that's the story of Jesus. And then you get to, to John and it's, it's the story of Jesus. A little bit different perspective. More information, but it's... it's and then you get the Acts, the book, the book of Acts. And it's the history book of the early church and you see how they live it out and how they use God's word. And you go on through. So start in Matthew. And then, and then it, it read at least four days a week. I shared three weeks ago how, how the statistics demonstrate, convincingly demonstrate how, how people who engage in God's word at least four times a week, their lives are markedly different. Well, well of course they're different because the word is, the Bible is unlike any other book. You can read the, the finest, most interesting literature, and I'll tell you what, it will inform you and it'll entertain you, but it will never change you. God's Word changes behavior, <clears throat> but only if we're in it. But engage with God's Word at least four times this coming week, and then read at least one chapter each time. You don't, you don't have to read ten chapters at a time. This is not, this is just, just go deep. You don't have to go broad, just go deep. 
Spend time in God's word. My friends, God's, God put this on my heart actually some months ago now that, that, that we have a lot of people who love God's word and revere God's word and would never do any. I mean, there are, there are some of you, you would just, you would never, ever, ever, ever think about throwing away God's word or damaging God's word. And yet some people, even though they revere God's word, they don't read God's word. I want, you to be a, I want you to be a person. I want you to be a man or a woman. A man or a woman who's submitted their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, but then you become a person of God's word and God speaks to you and then you begin speaking God's word. And I'll tell you what, you're going you're gonna to see change not only in your life, but you're, God is going to use you to change the people around you. Be a man, be a woman of God, submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Be a man, woman of God's word. If you have that Bible, go ahead and just take it in your hands. Maybe electronic, take it. Just put it in your hands. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. How it speaks to us. How it uh, encourages us and corrects us and sometimes rebukes us. And, and it, uh, it informs us, but it also trains us in righteousness. Pray, Jesus, for every man and woman here today, regardless of age. I pray for those kids, Lord, up in, in AFA Kids right now. I pray that they too. I pray for the kids in our, uh, in our early childhood ministry in the nurseries. I pray that they too, Lord, will be people of your word. I pray as they're hearing those stories that a love for your word will be deep within them so that when we give our lives to you, when we give our lives to you, when we give our lives to you, we become people of your word. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're not done. I'm going to ask those who are going to help me this morning, if you would go ahead and come forward. We're going to, um, the praise team is coming as, as well and are going to assist us as we, as we uh, receive together this morning. Um, we're going to observe what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. Uh, some instructions, even as this is beginning to be distributed. Please hear me. You do not need to be a member of this church. You may be visiting today from another place. You do not need to be a member of the church to, to participate. We encourage you to do so, but only if you have surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible is very clear on this that we should only receive it if we have surrendered our life to him. But you can do that. Lord, come into my heart. Forgive my sins. I believe that you died on the cross and you rose from the dead for me, for mankind. Give my life to you. If you've prayed a prayer like that, whether it was earlier today or a long time ago, you know that you're the Lord's. Please, please, please participate. And, and uh, if you would hold it until everyone has received, would you do that, please? Just hold it in your hands. And then in a few moments, we're going to receive this together. And one final instruction, would you spend these moments, we have some music playing here, but I want you just to be seeking the Lord. I, I tell people this is a great time for you to say, Lord, 
just do a scan, just do a scan of my life. If there's, if there's anything in me that I need to surrender to you, I do so right now. If there's anything that I need to do to make, make it, to do right, um, show me right now. Spend some time with the Lord. Hold until everyone is received. Thank you. Thank you for the cross, Lord. Thank you for the price you paid. Bearing all my sin and shame. In love you came and gave. Like us, he never saw Jesus in human form. He came to know Christ after Jesus had ascend, had been resurrected from the dead and ascended into heaven. So we have a lot in common with him in that way, even though he lived a very long time ago. 
years after the uh, resurrection, the crucifixion and the resurrection, the Apostle Paul's writing to a church in a place called Corinth. And he, and he tells them this. He said, I, I receive from the Lord what I also now pass on to you. And he's remembering back, not because he was there, but because it was told him by people who were there. And we have those accounts in Scripture. He said, The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and he said these are now Jesus' words this is my body which was which is for you do this in remembrance of me would you take that in your hand and let's pray before we receive together. Lord, in our hands we hold a representation of your broken body. You are a good God. You're the one true God. You're a merciful God. took the beating for us. Your body was broken for us. We remember you and we remember what you did. In Jesus' name, let's receive the bread together. same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus was establishing a new covenant. Jesus essentially was saying from this day forward, everything changes because of what I've done and what I will do. Take that in your hands and let's pray. Lord Jesus, again, we come to you with gratitude. In this cup, Lord, is a representation of your shed blood. Your word tells us, and we are reminded again today, that it was the blood that you shed on the cross that forgives our sins. All of the things that we've done that were contrary to your word, all of the things that we did that, that brought a brokenness in our relationship between you and us. The things that we've done that hurt people and that harmed people and hurt ourselves and injured ourselves, they're forgiven because of your blood. We live in that new covenant. We are new people because of the blood that you shed on that cross so many years ago. And yet, it's powerful today, and we remember you. In Jesus' name, let's receive the cup together, please. And then finally, Paul writes this. He said, whenever you drink it, 
For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And in that statement, it's not just talking about a present reality, but a future day when he comes. Jesus is coming. He's coming soon. And throughout time and eternity, every place, every culture, people who have surrendered their lives to Christ are going to come together. And folks, we're going to have a party. It's going to be great. Would you stand with me? This is a little bit like, just a little bit, just a little bit what that's like. Going to be like that day. We gather together because of Jesus Christ. We worship him. Would you one more time go with me in prayer? Lift up your hands and, and just even your voices and let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the power of the cross. We thank you for the power of your broken body and shed blood. We thank you, Lord. We remember you and we look forward to another day. Help us, Lord, to be people who have not only been surrendered to you, that's most important, but then, Lord, people of your word who will change, who will be changed by your world and change the world around us. Give us, Lord, the awareness in a greater way before, than, than ever before that we have authority to speak your word. Help us, Lord, we give ourselves to you. Bless these people wherever they go, what they do, what they put their hands to, Lord. May they understand that they are the church outside this building. <laughs> wherever we go, we are the church. We love you and we praise you. We pray these things in the mighty, matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Go in the presence and the power of Jesus Christ.